It's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now I do the same, this, blah. Start again. Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, House Speaker Anthony Rada has resigned in the shame of after inviting and celebrating a Nazi in Parliament. And with Truth and Reconciliation Day, we try to look at the path to healing. But what about those who suffered for decades? How does it feel for them? We also look into the dangers and inconveniences of personal drones, the risks of mixing cannabis and alcohol, and why a city in Ontario seems hell-bent on waging war against its homeless population. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help you be at your best. I'm going to go off here a little bit, and uh, I know it's all about being at your best, and uh, you know, so on. Some people not at their best. Maybe that's the story coming out of the the first segment here. We're talking about people not at their best, but I may not be at my best. You know why? Because I'm angry. I'm really angry, and I'd like to use language. I know I can say pissed off and not get kicked off the air, but I'd much rather use more powerful language if I was allowed. But holy crap, man, what kind of country are we living in where they invite someone to speak at, in, in, uh, in, in the House of Commons, to speak in Ottawa, that they clearly didn't vet very well. They clearly didn't do their due diligence. I mean, basic due diligence. When people book me to speak for at, at a speaking engagement, they had they do some pretty do, you know deep due diligence before I get to, you know get up in front of a, a group of two hundred and fifty police chiefs or or, or lawyers or, or judges in, in, a, in a in a conference. Right? They make sure that I'm the guy that needs to be there that has the background and the depth and no skeletons that are going to come out and haunt anybody. Well, come on. It's the House of Commons. It's, it's, we're talking about the most powerful people in our nation, and they can't get it right. You know, Anthony wrote it. He resigns. You know, he 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 uh, finally, as they say, caved for his resignation. What do you mean, caved for his resignation? The guy made a huge boo boo, absolutely, and stuff definitely rolls downhill. But you know, just you know, I'm not a political guy, as I've said in many shows. But our pri- our prime minister is still standing. All those behind him are still standing. You know, Melissa Lansman, she stood up and made a whole big deal of it. You know why? Because she's Jewish and she cares and she's a human being. And you don't even have to come from that faith, our faith. I'm also Jewish to come from that faith to be blown away with the inconsistency and the insincerity and the absolute disregard for the trauma that having this guy on national television would bring to not only people who haven't lived through a Holocaust of some sort, specifically this Holocaust we're talking about under Nazi rule, but for their children, right, their grandchildren, but there's still survivors out there, my friends. And these survivors are people, many of whom I know. But regardless, we're dealing, you know, with reconciliation. We're talking, we're going to get to that later in the show. We're talking about doing better and being better and making up for the huge mistakes we make. And here we are, 2023, in the land of Oz, where you can get anything you want online, including information. My uh, partner's here with me tonight in the studio, Glenn Bergonier, and he, um, 
he's my producer and uh, Glenn like I, I just don't get it man like you, you know you're 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 a man of color you're you're you're, you're you know involved in in, uh, in in community politics you you know you understand what's going on in the world like you got to as a young person you got to shake your head and say what oh no i'm just this is embarrassing like without hesitation this is something that Everybody in the parliament, everybody, not just Anthony Rota should be most ashamed, but everyone who stood up and applauded blindly to just hearing what this man was, he fought in World War II against the Russians. That's basic history. The Russians were only an enemy for a very short span right. in that war. And by right. 1943, they were some of our strongest allies. Right. So that means that ever, everybody in, the, in parliament either doesn't know history or wasn't paying attention or truly didn't care. And none of those are good answers for the leaders of this country. Yeah, 100%. And you know what? You got to think about the, the security too, right? That's involved around having somebody like Zelensky in the country, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, you know, having him in, 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 in the House of Commons. And you'd have to assume that they, you know, beyond the, the regular folks that they know have been vetted and then vetted and then vetted again. Any guests, right? Yep. I would have to assume that the guests are up to their eyeballs in being vetted. And this guy walks in like a superhero. I completely agree. I actually heard an argument a little while ago for when it comes to security. They said we should be careful about blaming security because their job is to vet security threats, not vet political mess ups. And this was a political mess up. So security should have caught this in my mind. Yes. But Anthony Rota's, his interns, his aides, anybody who worked trying to organize this meeting, allowing Zelensky, who is Jewish himself, into this country, yeah, no this is a mine. Like this isn't a major thing. Sorry, this isn't a minor thing. This is a major thing. This is easy to typing the person's name and find pictures, find articles, find proof. But apparently, none of that was done for whatever reason. And like I said, I don't think just saying we're sorry and hoping we can move past this exactly. is enough. And I'm not saying we need to fire everybody, but. Something needs to change and needs to be done because this is just terrible. You know, when I work with uh, with kids in crisis or families and, you know, individuals and either coaching or in therapy, you know, one of the things we, we learn early on is, is how to fall on your sword and say you're sorry, right? Hmm. But but part of it, because it's, it's, it's about losing ego, it's about, you know, making amends and all that kind of 12-steppy type of stuff, which we'll get to in a little bit later in the show as well. But, it, you know, what, what, I, what I'm getting at here is that the depth and the sincerity of the apology has everything to, do with, everything to do with cleansing the soul, you know? So teaching a kid to say they're sorry in a way that really means something, or moreover, more importantly, teaching a parent or, or a partner in a marriage, you know, um, I was just on a conference on, on, on a call with a, with a person that, I, that I'm looking after and uh, dealing with and, um, you know, trying to teach them how to say, say sorry for making a huge mess, you know, at home. Right, yep. in terms of a huge war and conversation with their partner. And, 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 and they're like, well, I don't feel like I need to say I'm sorry because I don't think I did anything wrong. I said, well, that's, that's the whole step of healing, right? That's the whole reconciliation thing. It's the whole Trudeau speaking out. Like this guy, Trudeau, needs to call Zelensky and, and, and reach out to him and say, listen, brother, I'm really like, this guy needs to be heartfelt in, yeah. sweat, in a sweatsuit, right? Feeling chill. What do you think? I think I completely agree. I feel like even the apology, if that's what you want to call it, that we even received as Canadians from the prime minister was a farce and we need to get a genuine one. And I think this is one thing out of all things with politicians in general that just is so disappointing to me is that none of them know how to apologize. These politicians are human beings. They will make mistakes. And as long as they own up and are willing to learn from the mistakes and move on, I accept that. But saying 
this rushed apology, trying to really put the blame on someone else, trying to say that it's not your fault. I've made apologies like that when I was a child and you didn't mean them. Exactly. I'm sorry I got caught is really what he's saying. And if he's saying that, then say it. But if you're genuinely sorry, this should be one of the easiest things to apologize for. Okay. In the little bit of time we got left here, we're going to kick this guy out of the country. Like now that we know we've got a bad guy living amongst themselves and I know the Simon Wiesenthal people uh, would love to have him uh, brought to trial and people are saying, well, based on his age, you know, like... I, I think the right thing to do, like they had with other, uh, you know, Nazi war criminals that they found throughout the world uh, over the ages, uh, they, this guy needs to be brought to some kind of international trial. Yep. Um, now that we know that he's living amongst us, as opposed to just, a, oops, we shouldn't have had him in the House of Commons. There are people, many people, um, that uh, from in all walks of life, by the way, not all just Jews, that are saying we don't need him in the country. I agree. As someone who is not Jewish, I agree completely that... If someone like this with this history is living in our country, it's because they have served time in an international capacity and then they are trying to rehabilitate themselves. We let them. But if we're just acknowledging now that this man has been able to live a majority of his life in peace in Canada, that is an even more of a big insult to the many, many people he's probably responsible for, whether directly or indirectly, who suffered, if not mercilessly killed. So I have very little sympathy. I don't care about his age. I think this is something that we need to catch right now. Well, I agree with you entirely. So hopefully we'll see how it plays out. That's Glenn uh, Bergogner. He's uh, in studio with me today. A rare treat for me. <laughs> hopefully it is for you too. Thanks, Glenn. I really appreciate it. Of course. got an exceptional guest on um, who's going to join us here tonight uh, in just a minute. And we're talking about National Truth and Reconciliation Day. It's September 30th tonight. It's right here, right now. Got something orange you should be wearing. And if you can find something orange that you can donate to an organization that will sell you something orange and use that money to make it better for people that live with the issues that those that live in our Aboriginal communities have to deal with and our Indigenous communities have to deal with and the children and the survivors of this horrible stuff we just keep unraveling and, uh, you know, unearthing literally on a daily basis of, of these bodies that are buried. And these are not skeletons that you talk about figuratively. These are actual skeletons of, of young people that were mistreated and, and we just, I don't know, I don't know how you can say sorry enough my guest is Nakaset. Um, she's the executive director of the Native Women's Shelter of Montreal, busy organization. And uh, Nakaset, thanks for being here with us tonight. Um, is there ever enough, can there ever be enough sorry? You know what? I don't really like sorry, right? I remember like working here at the shelter when like the prime minister from the conservatives got up and he did like an apology on residential schools and you know, then all the rest of the parties got up and did their sorries. And I'm like, but, you know, you haven't actually done anything. So we don't want your sorries. We want action. Right. Right. When you have like the TRCs and all these different recommendations and no one is applying them, that means you're not really that sorry. And the whole thing about, you know, these mass graves, you know, what the government does is they throw money at the communities and they're like, okay, well, here's the money. Get over it. Uh, excuse me, can we, <laughs> there's a lot of work to do. Can we not like have all the names of the people that, you know, are in these mass graves? Can you not, so we can actually inform the families? Can you 
can we have some accountability, please? That's what we want. So sorry, yeah, sorry, not sorry. That's what I, how I feel. Yeah, I hear you. You know, um, yeah, same thing as I, I was earlier on the show, we were talking about uh, the, the boo-boo they made in, in uh, the House of Commons when they brought the uh, Nazi uh, war criminal to uh, to celebrate him while Zelensky was in uh, was in it was it was visiting like it's just stupid people make such stupid choices like there's just no common left in common sense um quick question though like before we get on to some of the real questions i want to ask you um you know in in terms of the 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 um the trauma the trauma so the the continued conversation around um the shelters around the, the the schools, the 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 residential schools, and the trauma that 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 the trauma that that brings to people within your community and maybe other communities as well, not necessarily indigenous. I know as a Canadian, it, it horrifies me that I call myself Canadian and we were part of all this. But the you know how how does your organization, other organizations that that help in, in under these circumstances, how are they dealing with the mass trauma that it's causing people to relive it or to 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 try to reconcile in your mind the you know, the horribleness here? Um, are we ever going to get to a place where we can beyond the truth and reconciliation? Are we going to be able to reconcile in our minds so we can sleep at night? You know, unfortunately, there are some people that sleep very well that have created these traumas, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's a hard one, but. <clears throat> I mean, you know, working here at the shelter, we're, we're used to women coming in that either were residential school survivors or, like me, someone whose mother went to residential school. And the trauma, it goes, let's, we call it intergenerational trauma. It just goes from one generation to the other. And there's a lot of effects of residential school. There's a CBC documentary, uh, or sorry, not a documentary, it's, a, it's a, a film that they have or a miniseries called Bones of Crows. That demonstrates it perfectly in terms of the past, you know, residential schools and the effects of. So I think what we have to do as an Indigenous organization is to support and create programming for um, those that are affected because it trickles down into different um, institutions. So, you know, if people have a derogatory uh, sort of perspective of Indigenous people, when they come into the hospital, they're going to be treated badly, or the police, or youth protection, or, you know, like every institution, they need to change. I'm not seeing that change. I'm not seeing anything happen. It's like, here's the recommendations for TRC. Is anyone going to do anything? Nah, I don't feel like it. Yeah, no kidding. Some people don't mind. They sleep well. Others, you know, are like booting it to try to make change. So I know you're trying to make change, and you are certainly someone we can profile tonight at being at their best. You were just inducted into the city of Cote St. Luke, uh, their human rights walkway. Um, as much as I hear in your voice, and, and by the way, I feel the same when we talk about how we're dealing with the drug addiction issue and toxic uh, drug supply in Canada. So I'm, I'm with you. We've got lots of money there. Everybody's talking about it, but no one's fixing anything. People are still dying. But being inducted into uh, that um, kind of human rights walkway, um, do you feel like that's going to propel your message forward, or is it just a nice sort of, you know, a way to go Nakaset well on you. And, you know, did you take it kind of openly and, and happily, or do you feel it was just something to maybe pat you on the head a little bit? Listen, if you had gone through this walkway and you see the people that are inducted, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, I'm literally across from um, N- Nelson Mandela. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm not, I, I almost feel like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I haven't quite done enough work yet, but it's, it's definitely like an honor to even be considered to be in this walkway because, you know, I didn't start out thinking I was a human rights activist. I'm just someone who wants to support Indigenous women and creates programming and change in order for them to have it a little bit easier, right? So I don't know how society is going to view it or whether or not it's going to make any change. But at the end of the day, like in my little speech there, I was like, what I've done is a drop in the bucket. There is so much work to do. I have so much stuff to do. And, and, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to get all the work done in this lifetime, but if I can inspire others uh. to something, that would be awesome. My guest, Nuka Set, she's the executive director of Native Women's Shelter of Montreal, and we're talking about Reconciliation Day and truth and all that kind of stuff. So the question I pose to you is, what's next for you? What, what do you do going forward beyond the remarkable wor- work you do at the Women's Shelter in Montreal? Um, what are you doing now in the next, what's, kind of, what's your agenda look like to how to get this kind of truth and reconciliation action as opposed to just words? What's the game plan look like for you? Well, honestly, I would like some truth. That would be great, you know, and because I was adopted by a Jewish family uh, and I know more about the Jewish community and cultures uh, than I do of my own Cree culture, um, I'm very aware of the Holocaust and I'm very aware of the Nuremberg trials. And when all of this happened with the mass graves, I was like, when do we get our Nuremberg trials? Yeah, right? Yeah, so that's my thing. That's what I'm doing next. I'm going to see what I can do to try to get this off the ground because we don't want, we want accountability. We want to change the history books. Do you know that if you look at a history book, you're not going to see anything about mass graves. And, you know, in this year to this year, we, you know, children died at residential school. We never told the parents and we just put them in the ground behind the school. Moving on. Like, it's not there. And it needs to be there. And people, you know, I mean, I totally admire how they did the Nuremberg trials in terms of pulling people out of, you know, old age homes and having them recount what happened, who did what, who's on whose authority. That's what I want. So that's the next thing. Yeah, I love it. That's a, you want the, you want the truth of the truth and reconciliation piece, and you don't want it to just be a day a day a year. I'm sure that we're talking about it. You know, let, let's uh, spin here for just a minute. Um, women's shelter in, in Montreal. Give me an idea of kind of the mandate and how our listeners across the country can help you in that process or in any way donate to anything you got going on. Now's the time to see if we can draw from the tens and tens of thousands of people that listen um, and see if we can get some support. Uh, financial or otherwise, um, what what can they do? What can our listeners do to help you do what you do? Okay, so one of the projects that I've done uh, is called Resilience Montreal, and that is a day shelter that's uh, around uh, Cabot Square. It's across the street from it that helps uh, Indigenous people, both men and women, and non-Indigenous people, but it's it's for Indigenous people. It's, like, culturally appropriate for them and their needs. Um, that is, like, one of my, like, it's, I don't know, I want to call it my baby. It's, like, I love this project because we are in the process of, um, we bought a, a new building because the current location is going to be mowed down. We bought a new building, and we're going to turn it into a wellness center for the homeless. Nice. And that is an idea that, like, it doesn't exist. And the architect 
has done incredible designs and you know we need money for resilience montreal like i these pictures are unbelievable i think the gazette did a story on it like last year and showed some of the designs they're just and what was really lovely was that the architect her name is uh, claire davenport she went to the homeless community and said what does home look like to you and using those ideas that's what she created and she even did something that you know um is is like eco-friendly in terms of having an area where when it rains the rain is being um filtered into the building and then cleaned and then reused nice laundry so it's going to be completely different it's going to be one-stop shop because when in montreal because we have obstacles trying to get to the hospitals or trying to get support every single day there's going to be experts in the field that are coming in to say i'm here to talk about housing i'm here to talk about addictions i'm here to talk about um you know wellness i'm here to talk about whatever it is that that we feel is needed and they're just going to just be there on a weekly basis and so the population can get used to them and know that they're really there for them and get those services directly and become stronger and put us out of business how to be yeah, wonderful. Right. Wouldn't that be good? I'd love to learn how to dance or be a truck driver instead of do what I do every day. Other than the broad, broadcasting stuff I love to do and the coaching is great, but the therapy stuff kind of just getting harder and harder. Um, the, the, um, how do people donate to this? Like you, you talk about a great, a great concept. If I want to send money, how do I do that right now? Uh, Resilience Montreal, they have a website. So just go to Resilience Montreal and, and, and check it out. And they have a donate space, you know, or button. Yep. So have them donate there. And, uh, you know, I'm really like asking, begging people, please donate because it is such an incredible organization and it has saved people's lives. And like the director is a real advocate on behalf of the homeless. And he's almost like someone that it's like an Elvis sighting. When the homeless see him, they all go running to him. <laughs> like, you know, he's earned the trust and he follows through and he really like has a love for the people. And that's so important because, you know, most of the people that, you know, are at Resilience Montreal either went to residential school or their parents did, right? So this is literally the effects of residential school. It's being homeless. It's losing your children. It's being in jail. It's, it's really, really horrible, but we're doing everything we can to try to reverse that. And having this space when we build it is going to be beautiful, but we definitely need some money right now to get things going. So, what, What's your budget? <laughs> I need $6 million. <laughs> How much of it do you have? Oh, my God. Uh, we have already uh, probably $7 million. So $7 million has already been um, raised. But because of the uh, costs of um, of construction, the budget went like crazy. So originally we asked for four million and we got it. And then when we actually looked at what everything's going to cost, it was like, uh oh, wait a minute. So that is where we're trying to. Um, so ho- know, hopefully, hopefully you're holding the government's heels to the fire and getting them to write you some big checks. And you know, oh. if I, just to give you some, you know, how other organizations I know have been successful, getting out to some construction companies, some lumber yards, some contractors, people that provide concrete. All of these guys are looking for, for more than happy to look. Especially these days, they're all making money. They're all looking for a tax receipt, right? So just someone has to tell them how to pour or where to pour. They'll get their tax receipt for the five 
500000 or whatever it's worth for the yep. concrete. You know, your organization provides tax receipts. Everybody is going to yep. live and be. But I, I love it. I think it's brilliant. And uh, I'd like to offer my, um, I, can, I can provide virtual. I'm glad to do a virtual group once a week uh, around addiction and so on. If, if you like, I'm more than happy to donate my time and effort. And I'm going to talk to people as I go forward here in the Montreal community where I do come to. There's uh, some phenomenal kosher food <laughs> in your town. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm going to try to make time to come by and visit you and uh, talk to my buddies there about what we can do to try to raise some funds. Because you know what? Helping brothers and sisters from different communities, are, it's only going to turn around one day when my community, our community, and we're all one big community anyway, where my community is going to need help too, right? So mm-hmm. um, you don't have to come from it. You don't have to necessarily be directly affected by it. But things like, you know, reconciliation, things like the Holocaust, things like, you know, terrible human tragedies that we bring upon ourselves, um, I think we, we all we all need to step up and just in some way try to give back in a in a way that makes a difference. And I think everything you're doing is making a difference. So um, day by day, you get up in the morning and you get out and you, you hustle to do this every day. What what keeps you going? that question I don't know how to answer it it's basically a calling right and I come into work and I'm like look at my assistant Bonnie and I'm like who am I fighting today right <laughs> because you know like every day is different and and you know whether um it's it's you know justice for Joyce you know because that's something that I did last week or if it's you know uh youth protection or if it's you know the police or if it's, you know, Every Child Matters, or if it's, you know, the issue of homelessness and more the need for more funding because Montreal is like crazy right now with the, the rates going up on homelessness. Like, every day is different. Um, but, I mean, I have the capacity to do it, and I have the love to do it, and I think it's an honor. Like, I love my job. I'm, like, so lucky to do this job. So if I can be effective, then I'm going to do it, right? And and if if... And honestly, the way I work is I always bring people that are way smarter than me around me <laughs> so they can, I can I can refer to them and be like, hey, I need to, like, you know, write this to the People's Tribunal. Can you help, you know, in terms of, you know, having my own kind of Nuremberg for the Indigenous community? They, they come in, you know, people that are with the, those expertise that can help me fight, you know, they'll come in and, and I'll... I appreciate their help, but that's what I need to get things done, and it's an honor to do it. Nakaset, she's my guest this evening, the Executive Director of the Native Women's Shelter of Montreal. Let me just tell you something, young lady. You are on fire. You sound like you're impassioned. You sound like an impassioned 18-year-old. So you're not going going anywhere too fast, I can tell. And I just wish you all the blessings and strength that you need to keep fighting your fight. And thanks for being here with me tonight, man. Let's do this again in a few months, see how we're doing. Absolutely. I couldn't stop myself inside the 12-step program for an internet addiction person. Her name is Sarah. And, uh, and other attendees at a program that's growing. It's called Internet and Technology Addicts Anonymous, I-T-A-A. It's one of the 12-step programs based on the AA Alcoholics Anonymous uh, uh, principles, which is um, uh, higher power driven. And there's, you know, forms of, of steps that you go through, actually go through something they refer to as the big book. And, um, you know, that's a process. Sometimes can take people months, sometimes takes people years to get from step one to step 12. But the, the, what's happening is we have such a, 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 
so the kind of an outcry uh, of pe- from people, their families, uh, individuals who just seem to can't get can't seem to disconnect themselves uh, from electronics that deliver access to things on the internet. Right. So there's reaching thousands of members on, around the world very quickly. They have a hundred line online in person meetings in seven different languages. So it's interesting how they have an online delivery for an internet addiction. So I'm just going to hold that for a second and just think about that for just a moment, right? Let's contemplate what that means. It means that you have to have access to your device in order to get your therapy, okay? So it, it can be, it can be, you know, it's, it, listen, technology is something that none of us can just live without. I don't think there's an option of having some form of technology in your life today. Um, but more so, it's a question of how you use that technology. And I think part of the recovery process may very well be turning that darkness into light, so to speak, or turning the enemy into something, you know, good, meaning the, the computer, the, the access to the computer and so on, delivering positive um, interactions, positive feedback versus the negative stuff that brought you to it to begin with. So since Alcoholics Anonymous was founded in 1935, the 12 steps um, have adapted for other addictions like other kinds of compulsive overeating, overspending, gambling. Um, and traditionally, it's an abstinence-based program, so they've modified it a little bit for uh, our phones, obviously, uh, in order to be able to deliver the meetings. Um, their participants feel um, that their technology uses has veered into destructive territory, which is what brings them to the program to begin with. You know, I have many, many people that call me on a, on a regular basis, many of whom we treat. Um, you know, we do have a program for uh, people at Recovery and Home or at the farm uh, that deal with, you know, problems not being able to pull away from their technology. It, it, it can be highly destructive. People don't understand it enough. You know, I have people call me up and say, listen, you know, my marriage is falling apart. I don't know what to do. And, you know, my, my, my husband or my wife, whatever, my partner um, said that, you know, I need, to, I need to learn how to put my phone down. You know, every time I, we're together, I have my phone with me. You know, even when we're in bed, you know, before sex, after sex, checking the screens, like, you know, I just can't get any control over it and it's ruining my marriage. I said, so are you gambling? Are you sending inappropriate pictures? Are you sexting, texting, that kind of stuff in a, in a, in a, in, in a, in a destructive way? And, and she said, no, I just can't put my phone down. I just can't seem to put my phone down. And, and there's many of us that are like that. If you walk into a restaurant, anytime you walk into a restaurant and you see people sitting at the table and, you know, see a young couple, you would, you know, I'm an older guy, right? I look at young people going, oh, I guess they're on a date because they're happy. They can't possibly be married. No, I'm just kidding. So, you know, they seem to be happy, but then they're, they're, they're glued to their freaking screens. Like they just can't get away from their screens, right? So now that trouble morphs into online shopping, compulsive social media scrolling, like who's talking about me? That deals with a whole thing of, you know, uh, insecurities, anxiety, depression, if you don't get the message you're looking for or not. You know, I have pe- there are people that, that I've talked to in the past that, that end up in deep depressions because they post things and only get three likes and just can't understand why no one's looking at their posts. And they get so caught up on waiting for more likes that this now drives their negative behavior. You know, online shopping, wow, you can, you can blow a lot of money real fast. You know, my dad, God bless him, he's in his 90s, knows how to use a computer, unfortunately, because the guy likes to shop. He's got more stuff from Amazon than, than any three people I know, most of which he'll never use. But he enjoys it. It's a process for him. And my brother and I have learned how to send it all back. <laughs> Thank, thankfully for Amazon. We told him, Dad, shop anything you want. Just buy it all on Amazon. 
because we know the re- return process. But, you know, he's an age where you don't want to kind of turn that around because he's just happy doing it and it's, you know, not really going to hurt him. We, we got his back. But, you know, TV binging, for example, listen, I do it, but I do it in a, if you can believe it, I do it in a therapeutic way, right? I do it in a way where I've set myself up to use my binge watching as a means by which to decompress and find therapy, right? Or find uh, that that's therapeutic moment for me, that that calm place, right? So sometimes it's just watching some, you know, ridiculous uh, uh, comedy or, 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 or series. I like TV shows, so some action show where I just bury myself in the action and kind of take myself away from my current state of mind, which is probably not positive if I'm in this state of mind at the time. Sometimes just to relax because comedy makes me relax. So you can use the technology for good. Not necessarily is it all bad, but it's like anything else. You can drink too much orange juice too, right? People get sick from drinking too much orange juice. But one would say orange juice is good for you. So technology can be good for you. It can be a means to something very positive. But now internet and technology addiction, yet not recognized as a diagnostic or statistical manual uh, uh, in the mental health disorders manual, the DSM-5 it's called. But the standard classification of mental disorders used by mental health professionals in the U.S., the research now increasingly shows features similar that move to widely recognized disorders like alcoholism, that there's, uh, they attach the same type of things that they look at in a study. In 2012, college students with mobile phones dependence tracked structural changes to the brain similar to what has been discovered in brains of individuals as substance ad- uh, addictions. So the studies show, back in 2012, who knows what the new ones look like. We'll probably look at that. Um, actually, there's a 2016 um, research m- m- mode here. It's a notation. Study of people suffering from gaming addiction found their neurological responses to gaming cues mirrored those seen in drug addicts experiencing physical cravings. Can you jones for it? Can you, you know, is there, is there, a, is there a, um, um, a, a need, a physical need, like, like you're searching for a drug or you're searching for alcohol or searching for that gambling opportunity, that wager? You know, is there, is there the same thing happen in technology when you don't have it? Is there withdrawal? Absolutely. In, 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 at the farm in Stouffville where we treat people in residence, they don't get their phones, access to their phones, access to computers for the 30, 45, 60 days, whatever they're going to be there. They don't even get access to outside television. Everything's pre-programmed. They don't watch news. We don't get the paper. None of that stuff. Because those are all potential triggers for people who are, you know, have issues with, um, you know, all kinds of uh, things from you know, depression, anxiety, you know, f- that they get from the material they read and see. But internet addiction, if I had people using their phones, and there are, by the way, treatment centers across this country that do allow people to come in with their phones because, by the way, they charge all kinds of money and they really are more about money than treatment, quite frankly. But I don't want to sound like that guy. But at the end of the day, if you're allowed that, if you're allowed access to the norm, it's hard to pull yourself out long enough to, to re-kind of program some of the behaviors you need to reprogram. So Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous are all based on abstinence, right? But this program, we went back and said, right, this program allows you access to your phone for the purpose of good. So it's no longer a one-fits-all approach. Now they're allowing for, some, for, for uh, uh, people to have access and use without having to start from scratch saying, you know, I haven't used a computer in 31 days, but I touched one yesterday, so I have to start again from scratch, which is how it is with alcohol or with drugs. You know how many people have fallen away from Alcoholics Anonymous because they smoke a little weed? But that's not considered being abstinent, by the way. I know I'm digressing. 
So getting back to this program, designs for people specifically under a 12-step guideline to help people with uh, internet addiction, process addiction is what we refer to it as. There are other forms of process addiction programs. Smart Recovery is certainly one of them. There are others online that people talk about that are quite uh, effective. Um, AA or the 12-step program, in this case, the the, the internet-specific um, 12-step program, I'm sure is, is, is very helpful because at the very end of the day, what it does provide is it provides for the camaraderie of people to share, right? So it's a common place where people are kind of dealing with the same things that you're dealing with if you're in this situation and you're able to share in a common place where people get it. Because if you go into a room with strangers and start talking about being addicted to your phone, I can't put my phone down. Everyone in the room, except for the three guys in the back, George, Bill, and Sam, are all going to say, yeah, man, me too. And I'll tell you, as a guy that suffers with uh, anxiety disorder and uh, ADD and OCD, and I say to people, you know, I got anxiety issues, and people say, yeah, man, I got anxiety too. Like, don't diminish it for those of us that it's a real disorder versus those of us who just can't get their stuff together. Right. And just, you know, complain about stuff. So good idea. If you know somebody who's having some issues with, uh, with process addiction, electronic addiction and so on, uh, give the 12 step program a shot and, uh, might be very helpful. More than half of American adults have been recently exposed to secondhand tobacco smoke. And the vast majority of them are unaware. They don't even realize it. Perhaps it's not within the smell zone, but it's within the clinging and lung zone. The new findings suggest that 56 million Americans are unknowingly and routinely exposed to toxic secondhand smoke. So I don't know what that number is in Canada, but, you know, let's say we just, you know, make it reasonably even. So one would say 56 million out of 300 million people is what percentage. So we say there's probably four or five million people in Canada, six million people in Canada, perhaps, that are exposed to this on a regular basis. There's no safe level of secondhand smoke exposure. Long-term exposure can increase the risks of many chronic conditions, which are coronary heart disease, respiratory disease, and cancers. And this is according to Roxanne Wang. She's a doctoral candidate at the College of Public Health and Health Professionals at the University of Florida and the lead author of the study that we're referring to here. Yeah, we we look at studies here, not just news, right? So more than 13,000 U.S. adults detected the byproduct were detected or had detected on them the byproduct of nicotine in their blood, 51% of the people. However, less than half of the people with the evidence of secondhand smoke exposure reported being exposed to smoke, leaving a large and previously unreported gap in awareness about secondhand smoke. So that's the question. I'm going to bring in my guest this evening, Glenn Bergonier. And uh, Glenn, how can it be possible that someone can be exposed to secondhand smoke such that it's in their blood and not know that? I'm not fully sure. And I think part of it's that we got really comfortable on smoking. Like none, neither of my parents were smokers, but I was a smoker for about a decade or so and just going back, I love your dad. He wore a glove and everything. He tried yeah. everything he could, <laughs> except for not smoking, and I love it. Exactly. But uh, I think that's part of it, that I would have a cigarette and not realize that, all right, the cigarette's done, the smoke is out, but I still could be carrying around these carcinogens with me. And even the people who are maybe just kind of smelling it, or you know, at restaurants, if you're eating at a restaurant and you're outside, it might just kind of waft in. You don't even realize. And just adding in, we've learned recently that how... 
how bad for you just sitting in traffic with your windows down is. There's a lot of things <laughs> that could be contributing to this. And sadly, I think a lot of it has just become the norm in day-to-day life. So we don't even notice it as much anymore. That's a great, that's a great, uh, that's a great uh, added piece there that just sitting in traffic with your windows down. You know, when it's sunny, my wife drives a convertible and uh, often I'm thinking, you know, she drives around the city all the time. And I'm just thinking about the stuff she sucks in because yeah. she comes home and she's coughing and sneezing like someone who just came out of a, out of a, a smoke den, right? right. Uh, but the, 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 the health researchers analyzed the National Representative Survey of 13,000 U.S. adults and detected the byproduct, as we said. And their concern now is where, where, where does that lean in terms of people in public places? Right. So the conversation now is about people in public places and, you know, kids being exposed, although it's low level exposure, it's enough for the Florida health and policy people to be concerned about it. So they're, you know, they're looking at this study and, you know, there are less and less people smoking, um, certainly in North America and Europe, not so much in Asia, certainly not so much. Um, and, you know, one has to ask themselves and I'm certainly questioning myself, not that there's anything positive about smoking, but for example, if you go to China, there's a lot of older Chinese men that have been smoking since they were children. So is it a question of other things here that are killing us beyond the cigarettes and we're blaming it on cigarettes? Or cigarettes, I mean, I'm not suggesting cigarettes are good for you. Don't get me wrong. This is not a, <laughs> not a green light to go and smoke. But, you know, there are countries where people get old and continue to smoke and live a different lifestyle. So um, I'm just wondering if, if there's more to these studies um, in terms of the impact of smoke on, on people and, and whether there's other lifestyle contributors that go with a smoking habit. And I think that's something, um, what do you think? I think that's something we need to look at more is the smoking habit as much as the, in, yeah. the, in, 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 you know, the intake of the smoke itself. I would agree completely. And I think just to uh, touch on what you said before, that those are contributing factors. In North America, America's world kind of famous for it, but North America, we do have an obesity issue, a pretty, pretty rapid one. And smoking does affect the heart and lungs and the blood. Obesity does the exact same thing. There might be a a convergence of two terrible afflictions here really hitting us where in other parts of the world, such yeah. as Europe or Asia, obesity is not as big as a problem. Yeah. And lifestyles are generally not as, well, they're different, but we've taken on a pretty, and I'm carefully saying this, I'm not accusing anyone of being sloth-like or lazy, but we've taken on a bit of a lethargic lifestyle here in North America as well. And that could be it as well. There could be just, we're not working out enough. We're not doing enough to keep our cardio moving. We're eating the wrong types of food and on top of smoking with probably a high stress. That's just a combination for your a bad heart. So there you go. Glenn Bergonier, an expert on just about everything. That's why we, <laughs> that's why we have him here. Uh, thanks Glenn. Appreciate it. Um, you know, just to touch on something really quick, there's another study out that's also concerning for me there, but young adults who simultaneously use alcohol and marijuana together, it's links to more drinking. So, um, one would say, sure, you, you smoke a joint, you're, you're parched, you drink more, right? But there are some of the studies that they've looked at here in the uh, clinical and experimental research study, uh, the alcohol portion of it, that young adults are simultaneously using alcohol and marijuana on a given day was associated with consuming more drinks, right? So um, there's also a phenomenon here. Uh, to step back to smoking cigarettes for a minute. Uh, young people have learned over the last decade or so, maybe longer, 
how to do something, smoke something called poppers, which is a combination of nicotine and cannabis in a bong, a pipe, uh, a joint, but much better in a bong in terms of what they tell me in terms of the rush they get to their brain. No kidding. You're, incre- you're, you're, you're intaking a bunch of THC and a bunch of nicotine at the same time. And I don't know if you ever remember smoking as a kid or still smoking or ever smoked at one cigarette and never again and the dizzy kind of, you know, almost nauseous feeling that you get. I puked certainly the first time I smoked a cigarette. But the dizzy kind of, you know, head rush you get. That's what these kids get, adults too, um, when they smoke these poppers. So it's, it's a combination of what's being smoked. And now we're, con- we're looking at the combination of, of marijuana with alcohol. And the collected data from like 400 adults, uh, eight, you know, aged 18 to 25, so 50% of them women, 48 were white, uh, in the greater Seattle area. And they reported recent simultaneous alcohol and marijuana use. So they also included a sampling of college and non-college students. So... Uh, six bursts over two years. Young adults completed 14 days of online surveys, uh, reported their alcohol and marijuana use and related effects from the previous day. So par- patients also, participants also reported drinking 36% more based on survey days, which meant three and a half drinks to four drinks and 28% on those days where they didn't drink. So I'm not sure exactly what that means. But the negative alcohol consequence um, from an evening of smoking weed and alcohol is greater in terms of how crummy you feel the next day. So one negative marijuana consequence, by the way, is 56% of those days, people felt foggier than they would if they were drinking alone. And on, 20, on those days where they had simultaneous use, um, they consumed 37% to 43% more alcohol and had more negative alcohol consequences. So the concept is, I think, frankly, if you're going to smoke weed, smoke weed. If you're going to drink, drink. Do both responsibly. Needing to mix them together to mix and match. Meh. Now you have to think if it, I'm getting high or I'm trying to make myself go away somewhere. And it's when you go away somewhere and you want to go hide in some place and you want to use alcohol or dope or some form of at-risk behavior to do it, that's when we have a problem. I want to talk now about uh, security, security in general. So I'm the kind of guy that has a lock on his balcony door, although I live on the top floor of a building. Um, You know, you'd need a helicopter to pretty much break into my place. Um, and you know, I, I have security where I need to have security. I have cameras on my car. You know, I, I carry devices to protect myself. I'm going to be careful what I call them, but devices to protect myself and not a gun, by the way, uh, or a knife. And, um, you know, I kind of think about security. I wouldn't think for a moment. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm keeping my blinds drawn. I never thought for a moment about walking from my bedroom to the kitchen in my underwear, if just my wife and I are there. Um, yeah, I know, it conjures up a horrible view. But listen, don't, don't think about that. Think about how insecure I now feel about doing the same thing. And how many of us do that? Or just running around in, you know, in a pair of shorts. Or, you know, or, or just you know, half a towel because you're just running from the bathroom to the kitchen to grab a drink to go back into the bathroom. And, you know, and you're 25 floors above the ground, eight floors above the ground, and think to yourself, like, there's this clear view. No one's looking at me from these days. You can see from condo to condo to condo to condo. But you know, assuming that there's a clear sight somewhere else, would you think that someone's going to roll up on you in a drone? So the way that this story plays out, the drone is no different than the old-fashioned shoe camera. Yeah. If you're old enough, remember the shoe camera? People still have them. 
Let me tell you about the shoe camera. The shoe camera is a way to look up skirts going up and down escalators or on a subway or under your under the desk at school. The creepiest thing possible, in my opinion. Like, if you want to stare at somebody, stare at them and get called out and be done with it. But creeping up on somebody with your shoes, now with a drone? Because no one knows who's attached to the drone. You can fly these things sometimes from miles away. God, you've seen them on TV shows and any of the movies that you see about, you know, disasters and, and wars around the world where they're, they're flying these drones with, you know, nuclear heads on them, you know, from, these guys are flying them out of Colorado and they're dropping uh, ordnance in, you know, somewhere in, 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 uh, in Asia or the Middle East, right? Like, it's just, it's just, it's craziness. So this drone thing has become a big issue. Lisa, who's a woman that lived there, she saw it out of the corner of her eyes. She was living in a midtown uh, apartment, living, does, still lives in a midtown uh, apartment. She caught out of the corner of her eye this white drone with four propellers. It was broad daylight outside her apartment building. And, and you can't hear it because there's construction everywhere around where she lives. So one would assume midtown, maybe young in Eglinton, young in that area. So as it veered off, she stepped onto her balcony and managed to take a picture of it. But now she's finding, Lisa, that there's nothing anybody can do. You can't identify a drone from a picture. It's like any other device. You need to get its serial number or its special electronic ID number. And I don't even know if when you buy a drone, if you register it for like like you do with a gun or anything else, or get a fishing license or a license to drive a boat, but I think you can fly a, a, a drone without any license. As a matter of fact, I'm sure. Because one of my idiot friends has one. He, he won it at a golf tournament. It's the, most, it's the most ridiculous thing how he flies around his neighborhood taking pictures of his friend's backyard. Now, on the flip side of it, I know a lot of people in real estate that make huge cheese as a result of having these drones because they can, they can search a property up north. They can show properties up north. They can do a flyby of a you know, couple of acre property and give a good, a good context to the, to the potential buyer of what that looks like, Right? There's drones that can be used. I have another friend of mine. In the, uh, I, I know I have a lot of friends. I'm just an old guy. Maybe they're not friends. They're acquaintances. Anyway, um, they're, they're, I have a guy who makes a living fixing roofs, and he does his, his whole estimate based on flying a drone over the roof and taking close-up pictures and wide-angle and zooming in on the wet and damp areas without getting on a ladder. That's cool. For me, anything that keeps you off a ladder is worth doing, Right. So the problem is it's leading to all kinds of privacy concerns. And there aren't any rules really or regulations around these things other than the kind of, um, you know, aviation laws. You can't fly them around the airport and so on and so forth. People do it all the time. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, there's an issue here that we'll get to in a second about how the orange helicopters, the people here in, in Ontario, uh, they're the helicopter service um, that, that uh, you know, is basically a first-line responder. Um, they're there to, to, to p- take people out of terrible situations, get them to the hospital. They're having issues with drones. But the, tri- the privacy expert says here that Canada needs more drone regulation. It's like, no kidding. He's the director of uh, Global Privacy and Security uh, by Design Center. Is Ontario's former Information and Privacy Commissioner. His na- uh, her name is Anne uh, uh, Kavukin. And it's potentially dangerous, but beyond that, it's creepy. You're in your backyard. How many people have you heard? Have you heard any of these stories from anybody that you know? Anybody that you know have a pool? First of all, you got to know those kind of people, right? So... Any, if any, and you know anybody who's got a pool or, or, or at the cottage, you know, li- sitting by the dock and all of a sudden they see a drone, you know, up there somewhere. And by the way, the more expensive the drone 
And the better the camera, the further away you can be. So you can beach surf from far enough up there that if you're looking straight up, you're so busy having your eyes, you know, um, deal with the sun that you don't see these things flying a couple hundred feet above you who are taking pictures of your kids in their bathing suits and using them for no good. I know I sound like a creepy guy, right? I just think like that. I just think like the bad guys. Maybe that helps me do my job. But I, I, I would be, I am now very concerned about, you know, children in particular, because I think, you know, children are, are, are absolutely um, at risk in so many scenarios. Now, even having them by the pool playing quietly in your backyard where you know they're safe, you know, wearing, you know, a two-piece suit. If your eight-year-old daughter wears a two-piece bathing suit and your son is wearing a bathing suit, there's people out there, unfortunately, that are sick and creepy in that order that may find that in some way attractive. And they may find that somehow stimulating, as sick as it sounds. So taking those pictures now has some commercial value because you can share them and sell those online. And oh, by the way, let's flip the switch now to other forms of bad guys. You're a drug dealer. And you got your buddy searching out the, the area where you're going to be making your deal with, with, a, with, a, with a, a drone that can see police and undercover people from miles away. If you invest a few thousand dollars in a great in a great drone and someone who knows how to fly one properly, you can do all kinds of counter surveillance and surveillance. Let's look at people who do theft and robberies. Great opportunity to be somewhere, see how people come and go, and not have to sit outside the door like the old days. Sit outside in a car around the corner, hope they don't see it after you've been sitting there for three and a half days watching them, until you can figure the best time to hit them, so to speak, or pull the pull the case. Well, now you can use it with a drone. Just a drone will just, you're way out in the corner. Like back in the days when I first became a private investigator, I did a lot of search and rescue. And, and, the, and the search and rescue would often involve finding and, 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 and tailing the bad guys, so to speak, to, to lead us to the, to, to the mostly children, teenagers, uh, that we had to find, secure, and bring home. And we would do that with tracking devices. They were big and clunky in those days. They got much and much, much and much, much, much smaller over time. Now you can track them from your phone in a, in a device that's no bigger than a, a dime. If you can get it into the undercarriage of the vehicle, I digress. But I'll tell you, if I had drones, if we had drones, we, could, we would have sped up the process of searching neighborhoods looking for kids. So, you know, they can be used for good, but they can certainly be used for evil. And the whole conversation that I'm trying to have with you all here right now across the country and those that are listening to me both live and on the podcast, you know, if, if you know people that have issues with drones, they need to reach out to their members of parliament. They need to reach out to their community officials. They need to reach out to their condo association and have them pass a bylaw that these vehicles, these machines are not allowed anywhere within several hundred feet, although the, as we've discussed, the whole camera thing and the ability to, to be able to, uh, you know, the whole ability to be able to uh, do it from a distance doesn't really you know, help much if you have a zone around them. But anyone who notices it, security should be looking for it. There perhaps should be cameras on top of buildings uh, instead of just antennas to make the money that will catch these things in flow and uh, report them to the police as quickly as they can. You know where your children are, your loved ones, your pets, your seniors? It's probably a good time to check and make sure they are where they need to be, especially if it's getting late at night where you live and it's getting you know, darker a little sooner. So uh, check your people out. Make sure they're where they're supposed to be, including your pets and elders. If not, you can always call 911 wherever you are and ask for something called... 
a wellness check and they'll go and make sure people are okay if you're concerned about it or you don't live where they live and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So if you happen to live in Coquitlam in, in Vancouver, outside of Vancouver in British Columbia, you're probably embarrassed as a community right now. Let me tell you why. And if you're not, maybe you should be. And here's why. The poster, there's a poster that says whites only parent and child group in Metro Vancouver. Now this is a poster different than, than a public, than a, the government sign. Cause we're going to get to one of those ugly stories here in just a minute. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about <clears throat> signs in a particular part of Ontario that were put by, put there by government, not just by ridiculous people like those that have put up this, uh, this toxic sign, as far as I'm concerned, um, outside of a mother and child group. And they suggest that the sign um, has been partially removed, but it says that it advertises a mother and child group for families of European descent only. Let me tell you something. I know a lot of yellow, black, green, and orange people that come from Europe. And um, so that doesn't really work because the sign says whites only. So who are they kidding, right? City officials in Metro Vancouver described the signs advertising as whites only social group for mothers and children as vile garbage. Whites only mums and tots group meant for families of European descent began popping up on Instagram and X, formerly known as Twitter, and many of the other places that uh, racist people post this kind of stuff. CBC News located some of the signs of more than one, shopping mall and other forms of uh, public uh, places for display. Glenn Gregonier, he's in the studio here with me, so we're going to grab him one more time. It's pretty disgusting, right, brother? Like, I mean, in today's day and age, like, I, I, I know people that go to Jewish schools and keep kids that go to, to Chinese schools, and they go to schools specifically that, you know, maybe help a little more deal with their tradition, but they don't keep other people out if they want to come. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly what I put it. And I, beyond it being just ridiculous and just... Ridiculous is the polite word I can use without us getting your show canceled, Jonas, so we'll just stick with that one. <laughs> but it's, it truly is a sign of how insecure you are with yourself if you can't tolerate people who look different being around you or your children. I grew up in this city, in Toronto. This is a multicultural city. Growing up, I had friends of all shapes and sizes from all over the world. Never made a difference to me because they were my friends. Yeah, they might have. I had friends who were Muslim who had to pray at certain times of the day. That's just something you got used to and moved on about. I had friends who were Asian who ate different food than I did. You got to experience and taste different parts of the world. Like there are benefits to having people around you who don't look just like you. You get a better experience. You get a better perception of the real world. And I'm always surprised that some people are so insecure or are so angry or so ignorant that they think otherwise. You know, it's interesting when my kids were uh, little, I got three boys. When my kids were little, uh, we made sure that they, well, we made a choice for them to go to public school. And one of the things we wanted to make sure, I mean, obviously we were careful what public schools and, you know, in what areas and so on. I mean, like any other parent would be, um, and maybe somewhat discriminatory at at the time based on, on certain information we might've had, but either way. So the idea was that our kids would mix like you did, Glenn. Our kids would mix with other kids from other cultures and other, you know, my, my children had friends from all walks of life. Hmm. And, you know, they still have friends still from, you know, when they're youth that, you know, are still from all walks of life. And they've been to all kinds of interesting Persian weddings, you know, Chinese weddings, Muslim weddings, because these are the kids that they grew up with. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. Hmm. Um, And you said it, I think, I like what you said. We live in a multicultural country. So for them, for anyone in this country, in Canada, 
to not recognize that it is a multicultural, multicolor, multi-religion, multi-belief system, including how people want to you know, identify themselves in terms of their sexuality and so on. All of that's included. Everyone's supposed to live amongst everyone else. That's what made Canadians so great, brother. Mm. I think we're losing a little bit of that, no? I don't know exactly where we started to, but I, I do believe it's starting to happen. And I really hope that we all wake up to this and really push back against it very quickly because we'll realize very soon once we start to isolate ourselves. And I had a friend a little while ago was telling me one thing he loves about Toronto is you can go into, you can go into a Chinese restaurant, but it won't be just filled with Chinese people. And it won't be just Chinese people at one table and then black people at another table. He's like, no, if anything, when you go to Canada... There are just people at tables, and he loves in the States, whenever he goes to a restaurant that usually does kind of self-segregate this way, he's like, whenever you see a table of people of all different backgrounds sitting together, they're usually a bunch of Canadians. So <laughs> exactly. I think that's a, his, on a global scale, that's one of the things we are best known for and is one of our greatest strengths. And the fact that we seem to be losing it somehow is a shame and disturbing. And I really feel for the younger generations who are going to have to deal with a bunch of crap that I hoped we had lived through or moved through. Yeah, incredible. <clears throat> Glenn Rigonier, he's uh, my producer and also my, my co-host tonight, it appears to be. Um, <laughs> love having you. Thanks, buddy. Um, you know, the, 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 the organization, just so we can call out the bad guys, right? The organization's White Tri-Cities Parents and Tots. And it refers to a Metro uh, Vancouver municipalities in Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, and Port Moody. So um, I know that the folks that live there aren't happy with it. I know that people are talking about it. They're trying to take down all the signs. Uh, Coquitlam celebrates its rich diversity, and we firmly believe that it's through the embrace of different backgrounds and cultures and experts that we grow stronger as a community. Uh, the city of Coquitlam put out a release, and that's what they said. Census data from Statistics Canada, Glenn, 2021, says Coquitlam has a population of nearly, nearly 150,000. Port Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam. Quaquitlam has 62,000. It's a bit of a tongue twister, yeah. 62,000. So, you know, and this whole anti-racism coalition reacts to whites only. Like there's a, people are just, you know, up in arms about it. Hopefully enough so that um, that uh, we can uh, help people. These are, in my mind, this leads to uh, hate crimes of some sort. So mm-hmm. I think there needs to be definitely police involvement. Here's a story that's coming back. It doesn't, we can't seem to get rid of it like a bad smell. Um, the new ser- There's another sign-up now in Barrie. Uh, we did a show a couple months back where uh, the, Bar- the, the folks of the city of Barrie put up signs making it illegal for people to um, give other people money on the street, so to speak. So now they're putting up signs. Now, these are not posters put up by some half-wit organization, such as the one before in the earlier story. These are put out by the city of Barrie. And the sign says, say no to panhandling. Well, there's other ways to make a difference, they say, have spotted in the areas. They suggest that you can, there's a sign, in, on the sign there's a QR code, you know, that you can scan on your phone. And it goes right to CanadaHelps.org which helps people connect to various charities. So instead of giving people money on the street, who frankly need it to survive, however they're surviving, whether it's food, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's home, whether it's shelter, whether it's medication, whatever it is they need, it's not our job to decide what they do with it. It's our job to to, to, to give charity where you can, how you can. Uh, I don't have a problem giving it on the street. But now the city of Barrie is putting the sign up, and um, people are, again, up in arms about it, right? Uh, these it comes months after they tried to push a bylaw. They actually tried to push forth a bylaw that, that would make it illegal to pay people or to panhandle, to pay people on the street for 
depend, you know, you you couldn't do it. It was going to be a, a city by ordinance. You'd get a ticket for it. That, that that somehow the city was able to push back against that big time. Um, Jennifer Van Kennep, she's with the Barry Housing and Homeless Justice Network, says the signs will likely not lead to more charity donations. Uh, it's just a wrong approach. Uh, we would like to see our community work move towards helping each other. We have formal supports, but those information or inform, informal supports that come from being in a caring community are really important part of the safety net, she goes on to say. The sign uh, is misleading to the people in the community because there's no city of bylaw, uh, no city of Barry logo on it or branding on it. Just looks like a Canada Helps is running an anti-panhandling campaign in our community. Well, if that's the case, Canada Helps needs to lose their charity license. Because this is not, you're not supposed to advertise this way or, or you know, cause others harm to benefit your charity in, in such a way. It's just not what this is, not what it's about, right? So are we living in a country where someone has to tell you whether you can or cannot give somebody money, help somebody, give them food, give them a gift card? Christmas time, I hand out Tim Hortons gift cards like they're candy to anybody that looks like they might need it. I'm not looking to see what they do with it. I know that some of them sell it for money and use that money for things that may be not so good for them. That's not my job. My job is to try to give the charity in a healthy, open, loving, caring way. So making that illegal, making that something against a bylaw, putting up signs that are restricting it. Sure, they're trying to clean up the streets and keep those, you know, those homeless people off the streets. Well, guess what, friends? Those homely pe- homeless people are part of our community, and they deserve a life too. We talk about toxic drug supply and we keep talking about people dying in British Columbia and Alberta and Manitoba and like it's, it's every province in the country. Uh, and um, the problem here is it's not just the toxic supply that affects those that are on the street knowingly and willingly putting themselves out there at, to, in harm's way, but for anybody who's touching and using any kind of street drug, because all kinds of street drugs are tainted and become toxic as a result of their interaction with fentanyl, carfentanil, and alike. Let me tell you how this works. Let's just say Billy is a drug dealer. So Billy drug deals cocaine, a little methamphetamine on the side, and pot. He's been dealing pot forever, right? So Billy's a drug dealer. Billy has one $450 triple beam scale that he uses all the time. He's been using it for years ever since high school, right? You with me so far? So Billy uses that same scale to weigh his weed, to weigh his coke, to weigh his methamphetamine. And oh, by the way, when he's weighing his fentanyl to mix into all of those other drugs to make them stretch further. So let's say you take an ounce of cocaine and you can suddenly make it two ounces. Well, you're doubling your money, right? So imagine, sometimes it's three ounces, four ounces. Depends on how crappy the street drugs are that you're getting. These days, they're really crappy. I know, I know somebody who did a drug test on a, on a drug supply that he was about to do with him and his buddy, and they tested it, and it was 1% cocaine and 99% garbage, including fentanyl. Had he done that, he potentially would have had a drug overdose. Now, this is a guy who practices law, who's a normal human being, who him and his buddies once a month or so get together, play cards, do a little bit of blow, have, drink a few drinks, eat some food, and call it a night. You imagine? Well, you don't have to imagine because I'll tell you a real story. Let me tell you about Billy. That's not his real name. Billy and a bunch of his buddies were out Saturday night doing what they normally do. Billy's got a family of three children and a wife and lives in a beautiful home somewhere in Rosedale. Drives a fancy car, has makes a great living. Billy and his buddies were out 
doing their thing. They went from they went to a bar. They went out for Chinese food. They decided they're going to get a hotel room. They're going to sp- spend the night. They're going to play cards, do a little blow, smoke a little weed, have a few drinks, and call it a night, right? Casual, not a problem. The guy doesn't have a cocaine issue. And uh, he, anyway, this guy ended up uh, doing cocaine along with his other friends, three of the four that were doing cocaine. Two of the three ended up in Mount Sinai. One of them ended up in St. Joe's because they were so sick and so toxically, so hidden by the, so hit by the toxic drug fentanyl that was in the cocaine, right? So unknowingly, a lot of these overdose deaths are not all people that are living in cardboard boxes or homeless and are trying to kill themselves through street drugs because they can't face life. Some of them are just casual drug users. Let me talk, tell you about Sarah. Sarah's 17. Sarah ended up in Sick Kids Hospital because she smoked from a bong of weed that was later found to be laced with fentanyl because going back now to the drug dealer using the, 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 the scales we talked about, you with me? Stay with me, right? Now those scales are dusty. So when you're weighing your ounce of weed, you're a half an ounce of weed on the same scale without giving a damn about cleaning it. I mean, come on, drug dealers aren't the least bit sanitary. Do they care at all about what you're smoking, snorting, sticking in your arms or, 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 or down your throat? No, they care about money. That's why they're drug dealers. They weren't. They'd go to school and become pharmacists. They like to be drug, be involved with drugs, right? So they're not nice people. So this toxic drug supply that we're now understanding is affecting people from the age of 10 to 59. How are 10-year-olds being affected by toxic drugs, you ask? Hell of a question. By people, by adults, leaving their drugs around. And by having things like tainted fentanyl drugs in your home that are now on a, on a plate that you put on the kitchen table because you're cutting up your cocaine or you're cutting up your methamphetamine or you're cooking your, your, your what you think is heroin because it's not. You're cooking it and the residue of what's left behind on a spoon or on the table on the plate somewhere, the kitchen counter, makes its way to a child. Or a child eats something that has some form of fentanyl, something toxic, some kind of toxic drug supply attached to whatever it is they're putting in their mouth. Children, as you know, we've learned through the pandemic, touch stuff, pick their nose, and eat it, right? So finding drugs around the house, how many kids How many kids have been rushed to hospital in Canada in the last year for cannabis overdose as a result of eating gummies that mommy and daddy left on the kitchen counter because they were so freaking high they forgot to put them away? So the statistics, excuse me, come as the latest figures are released for August saying that there were 174 toxic drug deaths last month in the month of August in British Columbia, in Vancouver, frankly. I think maybe all British Columbia, but it says specifically Vancouver. The numbers represent the lowest monthly death toll recorded. However, the coroner still has serious cautions that the data is very preliminary. And by the way, not all these deaths... Are, are are reported in such a way that they you know they come back as as requiring a, a, a coroner's report. People die and don't necessarily get you know checked over to see why they die. Not everybody that dies gets you know an, gets an autopsy. So who knows, right? More than sixteen hundred people have died in the first eight months of the year, bringing the number of overdose deaths in the province of British Columbia to thirteen thousand since up to, uh, April twenty sixteen. Pandemic numbers. COVID kind of numbers. A statement from the coroner says two-thirds of those died in 2023 smoked their drugs. Not just shooting it in their arm, my friends, like we all think. We watch too much TV. Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe 
She says the relentless scale of the public health crisis requires a proportionate response, and it continues to recommend urgent collaboration with government and their ministries to save lives. So harm reduction and, and all these you know, evidence-based trauma uh, or, or treatment facilities, they're all great. I'm talking about street drugs. I remember back in the day, in my early 20s, when I started as an addiction counselor and I was on the street doing a lot of street work with what was then the, the Addiction Research Foundation and Clark Institute of Psychiatry. They now have become part of what is now known as CAMH. And I was doing a ton of street work, right? And, I, and I ran, we, we, we had a month or two where people were dropping like flies. Because there was a bad, uh, bad batch of speed on the street, literally speed on the street, methamphetamine on the street, mostly cooked in people's basements. It's now methamphetamine. It's, you know, crystal meth. It's all a derivative of the same. And it was tainted with um, some form of rat poison that somehow got into the mix of this dealer's bag and either some people said he was using it for cut. I don't believe so. But you know, And there have been other cuts used. In other words, other items used, other drugs used to, to make the drug stretch longer so you have more of it and make more money that are also toxic. But, you know, back in the day, you know, people were dropping like flies because there was a pesticide in, in the drugs they were using. And in those days, heroin was really heroin and speed was really speed and you know and people were dropping like flies until they realized where the 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 the, the messy drugs came from the the toxic drugs came from they were able to get it off the street we can't do that with such mass proportionate you know a, a, a use and abuse out there like the, the 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 number of people that are out there selling and using we can't possibly get our hands on like we could back in the day when we were trying to chase down a bad speed, speed supply in downtown Toronto. You kind of knew where it was, right? Now it's everywhere. People are getting their drugs over the internet. Over the internet. Listen, I sound like an old guy. Having it delivered to their house on the dark net by UPS or by FedEx or by, guess what, Canada Post. You don't know what packages your kids are picking up, do you? No, Ma, don't worry. It's just something from uh, Amazon. Oh, God, another package? You stop to think of what's in it? I've been to funerals where families then look back and said, Yonia, you're right. We never did realize that these packages he was getting every couple of weeks were, were, were the drugs that were killing him. Pay attention. What can you do? What can we do as Canadians? People say, what can you do? Pay attention. Street drugs, including marijuana, taboo. Just taboo. Anything off the street, anything that looks like a pill, taboo. You're going to a nightclub and you want to do this, that, or anything else? I wouldn't, unless you know exactly where it came from and you know exactly who's handing it to you. And even then, I'd be cautious. Street drugs today will kill you. You know, it's like the old days when, you, you know, we used to sleep around a little bit, used to get, uh, used to get uh, some form of uh, STD, and, you know, you'd get a shot in the bum with some penicillin, maybe take a pill or two, and you're good to go. Not now. Ever since the advent of AIDS and other forms of transmitted diseases, you get them forever. Sometimes they'll kill you. Same too today. Street drugs are like bad sex, man. If you don't protect yourself, you could end up dead. <laughs> 